about two to three seconds. Love Talk Radio. It might get longer as the show goes on. We shall see. And now we got everybody. So Hi, everyone. <laughs> we got Facebook. We got the Vibrator Network. And yeah, good evening, everybody. And also, oh, uh, before I forget, if uh, if Facebook watching videos on Facebook isn't your thing, we finally got everything all, on YouTube. Everything is all cut up on YouTube. So everything that we have streamed on Facebook. Uh, up right up until this past Monday, you can now find it on YouTube. So, and uh, ideally tonight after we're done with this show, I'll go ahead and get it uploaded and we'll just, I'll stay on top of things. I tell myself that and I guarantee that maybe tonight I'll be good. some point I'll slip, I promise. I'll text you a reminder every time. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yes, Patrick. Happy Monday. Happy yes. Monday. Happy Martin Luther King Day. Yes. Martin Happy Luther. we're done with retrograde day. Oh, uh, yes. But well, we had a fantastic weekend. We did. It was a, a wonderful weekend. Um, yeah, yeah, that was a uh, quite a ton of work of going, putting everything on YouTube. <laughs> and now I'm going to ask him to do it with my uh, cooking videos. <laughs> I love it. You're the one who suggested it. I did? Yes, you did. I have no recollection. I believe, I believe that. You what? suggested that we turn my cooking with kittens into YouTube videos. Was I drinking? Uh, I don't think so, this time. Huh. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, sure, we can do that. You are drinking now, though. I am Perhaps drinking now, that though. that is where Maybe. the wires got. Maybe. But, uh, yeah, so, we of course, this was Friday the 13th weekend. Yes. So we had a, had a good-sized crew come on out for uh Friday the 13th up here on Churchill. Uh, so awesome people braving the chill this weekend. Wasn't too bad, but it was, but it was oh, cool. Oh, it's bad, but it's not the night. I say that. I launched the tour and then leave. Yeah, you I, I will say Saturday was worse. I had to thaw my hands out at a vat of hot water at the uh, brewery. Yeah, yeah, Saturday wasn't great. Saturday was terrible. But, but, it was a great tour. My hands were literally frozen. By the Saturday time. was a fantastic tour time. That's about <laughs> had a private tour in Chaco Bottom, and then we also did our um, uh, Ghosts of John Marshall and Spirits of Court End tour over there in partnership with the John Marshall House, which thankfully for that one, at least like the thir- first 30 to 40 minutes of that actually is inside exactly. the John Marshall House. So people got to be warm during that, and then we dragged them out. For about a 45 minutes to 60 They had hand warmers. We provided them. Yeah, we provided hand warmers, and uh, as we'll say, everybody seemed to have a good time. So they they braved the chill, braved the wind chill on Saturday. And then Sunday we had a Shadow of the Chuckle tour, which was pretty much yep almost full. Yeah, yeah, we had, it was um, we had a good sized group last night. Um, in January, wow. Yeah, <laughs> we we uh, normally we don't do Sunday tours in. January. But because of the holiday today, we figured, oh, there's one on the tour. Yep. So, actually, we had quite a few people come out, and about half the folks were actually in from out of town. Oh, impressive. Yeah. So, we'll take it. Yeah, absolutely. We got to share our history. Yep. We got to, got to share some haunted history, or rather, Jeffrey shared some mm-hmm. haunted history last night. And then there's just me, who's at the coffee shop in the morning, playing tour guide and telling people what to go and do. Yep. And I got told I was excellent. Well, you Good job. Yay! I take my job very seriously. Self-clapping. All right. So, but yeah. So anyway, here we are, and uh, after only a week, mm-hmm. because um, just the way things are yeah, scheduled. Because, because next weekend is another big weekend, actually. It is. And then um, after that, right, we're we're partnering with Hanover Paracon, which is going to be uh, Hanover Tavern Paracon. Yeah. At um, Saturday at that Hanover Tavern, uh, lots of good speakers coming in. Chris and I'll be there with a the booth. Uh, and then Chris will be at the investigation that night. I, however, will be departing the tavern and coming down to the Poe Museum because we have birthday bash weekend at the Poe Museum where myself, Marsha, and Lee will be uh, helping out with that. And uh, we got two tours that night with Marsha and Travis. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So Busy weekend. Busy weekend. Thursday uh, trivia night at Rick's. Oh, yeah, thank you. Poe themed because yep. it's Poe's birthday. Yep. So, uh going to be down there at Richborough on Thursday for that. Friday, Friday. Oh, Friday, we, well, there's a tour Friday. Yeah, um, there's a tour Friday, and uh, Marshall will be launching it. Chris and I will be up at uh, the VIP event at the Hanover Tap and Paraton. Now, that's a VIP event. You can get tickets for that, so, yes. Yeah, so, um, we'll uh, be telling stories yeah, there. Yeah, we'll be telling stories and drinking. Sounds kind of familiar, right? 
Yeah, they're like, oh, no, we're going to have to get you drinks. Okay. They actually sound like they want to. Um, they want to do drunk ghost stories? Yeah, they want to do drunk ghost stories. I We have to be able to drive home at some point, so. Yeah. <laughs> I totally volunteer in the <laughs> If this happens, I want to watch it. <laughs> well, I'm also not, I'm not racking up a tab that's big enough to get through. So. Yeah. Anyway. We anyway, uh, and then the follow we and Chris and I are actually going to be out of town because we're going to be down in Orlando for professional ghost tour guides and operators um, conference. That's where we'll be. But yep. There will be tours on Friday and Saturday that weekend. So, but yeah. So. It's on Monday. Uh, Centennial celebration. Ah yes, thank you. A week from tonight is yeah the uh, uh, Poe Museum Centennial celebration, which will be at the Dominion Energy Center. Uh, the theater there in the middle of town, and uh, yeah, Arl Stein will be there. Arl Stein, and um, again, I, I dare not try to pronounce their names. Um, uh, she's one of the creators of the uh, Wakanda comics. Yes, so. yeah, the Black Panther. So, um, but yes, going to be very, very uh, fun event. I think there still should be some tickets available for that as well. I looked today; they were. Yep. So all sold out. So. Yep. All of that, it's all on the Poe Museum's website, so you can go check out what they got going on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Yes. Uh, Sunday is going to be a little bit more kid-oriented, from yes. what I understand. Yes. But, mm-hmm. hey, it's, you know, post for everybody. Yes. So, yeah. All right. With that, we'll actually get to what you guys came for, and that is the Witches 2, Witch Grave and Cemetery Lore. Yeah. So when we uh, when we were first putting this together, I, I, I did not realize that most all of this is really about dead witches <laughs> or women that were rumored, dead women that were rumored to be witches. So I I did not, I started putting things together for this before I even started editing your script. So <laughs> just for any clarification that may be necessary, dead witches. That, 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 that is tonight's episode. So We're going uh, to talk about their memory. Yeah, cheers, cheers, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and when we say dead witches, I mean, some of it is, um, it, it, it's all, some of it's rumor and conjecture, mm-hmm. you know, they're, as most of them were when they yeah. were recorded. Yeah, so, it is what it is, Yeah. some interesting tales. I do feel like we do tend to talk about dead people a lot, though, so it's mm-hmm. not that much of a thing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that is kind of our, our, our thing, kind of day in, day out. All right, so... <laughs> I please, talk to dead people. Please carry on. He does. No, I don't. Uh, All right. So if you're one of the or if you're one for wandering cemeteries like we are, you may have on occasion stumbled upon something that is a little out of the ordinary, a grave that seems particularly secure, or perhaps is inscribed with an ominous or puzzling epitaph. Upon closer inspection, or perhaps with a little bit of research, you might find that you have come across the grave of a witch. These graves help provide insight into the past filled with fear of devil worship and sheds light onto historic injustices which continue to haunt our modern world. Well, in the New England witch hysteria end century ago, the stereotypes of wicked witches persisted long afterwards. The legends are not just limited to New England. Across the United States and Europe, you will find evidence of witchcraft lore that lingers in cemeteries in the modern day. But to understand why witchcraft lore continues to haunt us, first we need to understand what sparked this hysteria that left deeply embedded into our psyche. So this is the old world folk belief labeled as witchcraft. When we hear the word hag, we think of somebody who is bent, wrinkled with age, and has a rather unpleasant personality. The term is synonymous with the word witch. Both words are used interchangeably to define supernatural demonic beings whose powers enable her to live a long time. On the other hand, witches aren't always evil. In some folklore, hags are benevolent, wise, beautiful, and perpetually young. The historic definition favors the more fearsome of the two identities, and the fearsome definitions, witches were said to have offered their souls to the devil in exchange for their magical powers. Long before the arrival of the Persian colonists in America and the Salem witch hysteria, witch hunts had begun in Europe. The European witch hunts indirectly started over the use of folk magic practiced in Old World Europe. Nearly every village had someone, often a woman, 
who was well-skilled in using charms and herbs to provoke prosperity or counteract misfortune. For example, sometimes the spoke magic was used to, as a measure to keep a dead relative's spirit from returning or to ward off enemies. Other times it was used to ensure a happy home and promote good harvest. Many of the women who practiced folk magic were regarded as a threat by the men who had religious authority in the community. They were soon demonized for possessing the old wisdom. While women were most often the ones accused, men were sometimes also caught up in the accusations. The religious authorities considered any ritualistic activities outside of their purview as the devil's handiwork, which in turn endangered the health and the livelihood of the community. Our historical information, which has started in Europe in the 19, or excuse me, the 1400s and lasted well into the 1700s. During the height of the European and New England witch hysteria, torture was used on the accused witch to force a confession. After enduring hours of torture and sleep deprivation, accused witches were usually sentenced to death, even if they confessed their guilt and repented. They were granted absolution from the sin if they confessed, but only if they were willing to identify other witches in the community. In America, the belief that witches were evil began with the arrival of the first colonial, colonial settlers. Many of the colonists were Puritans who lived under the guise that straying from what they deemed to be a virtuous life to one of sin was a sign of moral weakness, and that could attract the devil. Misfortune was a sign of the devil's workings in the community. Anything that went wrong was regarded as proof that someone had strayed from their Christian values and virtues. A large percentage of the accused were members of the Quaker Church. The Quakers believed that each person held the spirit of God within themselves. The Quakers rejected trained clergy, organized churches, and formal written doctrine, leading the Puritans and Anglicans to quickly associate the Quaker different belief structure to witchcraft. The Puritans, on the other hand, believed in predestination and original sin. Either you were one of God's chosen and could be saved on Judgment Day, or you were not. While the witch hysteria in New England had subsided by the 1700s, the belief that the misfortune was caused by witchcraft persisted across America. Entering into the 1800s, the belief in witches continued with the arrival of German, Scottish, and Irish immigrants. Many of the arriving immigrants still followed many old-world beliefs and remedies that were tradition in their homeland. The traditions of the new immigrants seemed bizarre and paganistic to many who lived in America for some time. Many of the folk beliefs involved charms and herbal remedies, which not only offered a way to cure illnesses and end misfortune, but also ensured a better luck and health. Droughts, epidemics, poverty, crime, natural disasters, were still things regarded as the work of the devil through the power that he gave to witches. Even in a world where scientific and medical advances were promoting a more logical approach to the misfortunes encountered in life, among these populations, however, fear of witchcraft still existed, and it was looked upon by many Christian religions as paganistic and sinful. There's little debate that the magic that was being practiced in the 1800s would be considered white magic, as it was focused on providing positive outcomes. But when this white magic failed to work, hostile feelings usually broke out towards the person who was practicing it, and the person performing the folk magic would then be deemed a witch, a reoccurring theme that continues well into the modern era. Any questions? No. Uh... Patrick, <laughs> uh, Patrick was talking and proposing a drinking game. Every time I say which? No, 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 no. Because we'll be every, drunk after three minutes. Every, every time that, um, actually, it wouldn't be during this show, because right now the cats are actually chill tonight. But, yeah, they're um, sleeping in bed upstairs. Except for Yuna, right here. But every time that Yuna uh, does something, gets, her, gets herself in trouble, take a sip. Every time you go look for food, Take a sip. <laughs> I said we would die. Every time we have heckin' screams from Vincent, take a gulp. Yeah. <laughs> Vincent is very well behaved during lives. Yes, he, he is. Because he usually cuddles with you. I'm here. It's Nico who tends to get into the trouble trying to get the skeleton to play Well, I was, on a, uh, I was on a phone call today, <laughs> and um, it was a, 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 a web call. Fortunately, I did not have the camera on, 
Nico up. I'm in the middle of my chest. <laughs> I'm trying to look around him, and he's got trying to go nose to nose with me. It would have been. You just want to kiss him. Yeah, it would have been quite embarrassing. You would have been so judged. You're you familiar in your past. <laughs> you're familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Continuing on that thing. Yeah. Now, uh, years after the witch hunts in Old World Europe ended, many people continued to believe that witches could return on the anniversary of their deaths as a revenant, a kind of zombie creature. The revenant witch could use her satanic powers to inflict revenge on the entire community of those who condemned her. Special precautions were always taken to ensure that the dead witch could not return from the grave. In Europe, witches were burned at stake for their crimes to prevent them from returning as a revenant. In some lands, the witches were hung, dismembered, and burned to ashes to prevent the devil from resurrecting them. The ashes were then placed in a grave. If the witch died while in prison, the body had to be placed face down in its grave to present, prevent it from rising. During the Salem witch trials, the accused witches were hung without being burned, but were always buried face down. The belief that a witch can rise from the dead still exists in modern cemetery lore. The historical information on the background of witches is important to keep in mind when exploring the legends surrounding witch graves. Just as legends are spun of ghosts who are associated, associated with odd-looking grave markers or misunderstood epitaphs, so are the legends of witches. And the cemetery witch lore covered here is just a mere handful of all that exists in America and Europe. Now, our first stop is across the pond in jolly old England, although this story may not be all that jolly, back in the year of 1705. In that year, an English woman named Marjorie Hilton, a.k.a. Meg Shelton, was crushed to death against a wall in her home when a barrel fell on her. People believed that her dabbling in witchcraft were, um, was evil and that she, uh, was evil and that she had died because the devil returned to claim her soul in exchange for the powers he granted her. Meg's grave is marked by a huge rock at St. Anne's Church in Woodplumpton, England. A small modern-day sign designates the rock as her grave marker, and it reads, Beneath this stone lie the remains of Meg Shelton, alleged witch of Woodplumpton, buried in 1705. Long after her demise, Meg remains known as the Flied because she was an accused witch who was rumored to have unleashed misfortune on her neighbors. Tales describe her as a witch of various evil abilities. Amongst her vast powers, she could shapeshift into animals to steal milk, burn livestock ill, and destroy crops. These beliefs led the townspeople to bury the hated woman head down in a narrow grave to ensure that she could never return from the dead. Unfortunately, to the terror of the terrified residents that that safety precaution did not seem to work. One version of the tale has Meg's arms sticking out of her grave the following morning. Another version has her entire body disinterred lying next to her burial site. According to both versions of the tale, a priest came and performed an exorcism and reburied her corpse. The large rock that still stands on the grave today was placed to prevent her from rising again. The lore claims that walking over her grave three times and repeating the phrase, I don't believe in witches, will cause her hands to resurface and grab hold of your ankle. Tourists who visit St. Anne's Church are told a gentler version, walking on her grave three times and repeating the same phrase, supposedly will grant you a wish. So, take your chances, if you will, a wish, or getting grabbed by the bony hand of a long-dead witch. Are you feeling lucky? Hey, good. <laughs> Just saying. You read for a while. Yes, it is. So, uh, next we are going to move north into Scotland, and we're going to move back a year where we find ourselves in 1704. In that year, the body of a convicted witch named Leolis Addy was buried in the mud along the beach of Torreburn Bay in Scotland. Town council records from the era documented the events of the trial and the location of her grave, and in 2014, her grave site was located using details from these documents. Unfortunately, finding Lilius's burial site didn't prove to be the archaeological trope that they were hoping for. Before we get to that, let's share the tale that led to Lilius's fate. It all started with the overindulgence of another townsperson. One night, a woman had too much alcohol and she began to feel drunk and woozy. 
Rather than admit that her behavior was a result of excessive drinking, she claims that Lilia's headcat fell on her. She claims Lilia's power came directly from her relationship with Satan. Lilius was arrested for witchcraft and for engaging in relations with the devil. After grueling interrogations and imprisonment, she confessed that she met Satan in a cornfield and even gave a description of him. She described him as having hooved feet and being very dark and cold to the touch. She said he convinced her to uh, renounce her baptism and then he granted her supernatural powers. When asked to identify other witches in the community, she could only point out those who had already been accused. Revealing new names would have spared her great misery and granted her the chance to repent, but since she couldn't name anyone that wasn't already known, she was forced to endure even harsher imprisonment and face her impending execution. Shortly before the day arrived, though, she was found dead in her cell. Most historians feel that she died by committing suicide. It was believed that the only way to stop a witch from returning from the dead was, again, by hanging them and burning them. But since Lilia took her own life and did not have a chance to repent, extra precautions had to be taken to ensure that she could not return. The tale of Lilia's Addie always manages to generate a lot of unease when retold by the locals. The reason is that archaeologists determined that Lilius' body is missing from her grave. <laughs> Sadly, Lilius' body is not missing because of anything supernatural. It's missing because of greed. In 1852, relic hunters disinterred her grave and sold pieces of her coffin, skull, and skeleton to antique collectors. Her skull ended up on display in the anatomy department at St. Andrew's School. From there, no one seems to know what happened to it. Even her coffin came to, uh, became of interest to relic hunters. Records show that a wooden cane was crafted out of a piece of her coffin and sold to a collector. In the modern day, Tory Burn authorities want to erect a uh, witch trial memorial to recognize Lilius as a victim of witch hysteria, an acknowledgment of a chapter of grim Scottish history, and finally giving some dignity to a woman that became a victim of Scotland's witchcraft hysteria. However, despite the written documents providing the facts of Lilius's demise, lore continues to circulate that Lilius is missing from her grave because she was resurrected by the devil. If greed has anything to do with the devil, it certainly seems like a plausible belief. Considering the injustice of being falsely accused and the blatant disrespect of her remains, the spirit of Lilius Addie certainly has every reason to be in a state of unrest. Probably haunted, Andrew. <clears throat> Probably. I'll have to check that one out. I do. <laughs> oh, I know. Do you have my head? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. The White Wish of York Harbor. We're going to go back up home to Maine. So this is a uh, post a village uh, called Old York Harbor, and it has enchanted visitors with its natural beauty since the time it was first established in colonial New England. However, the lore surrounding an 18th century grave in one of the town's oldest burial grounds cast a grim shadow on this part of the town's history. Shortly after Mary Nassim was buried in New York Harbor's old burying ground in 1774, rumors began to circulate about her dabbling in white magic. In life, Mary was well known for her ability to cure ailments through her knowledge of herbal medicine. She was also called upon to perform exorcisms. When she died at the age of 29, her husband, Samuel, chose to have her image carved in a way that he probably considered to be stylish and artsy. The carved portrait of Mary shows her with her hair parted in the middle and plied on her head like two balloons that was treading the high fashion style of the time. And contrary to the modesty that was so conventional during her lifetime, she was depicted partially nude. Of course. Of course she was. However, Mary Nason's uh, portrait was only part of what attacked so, excuse me, attracts so much attention to her grave. Unlike the other graves in the cemetery, Mary is the only one with a wolf stone covering it. A wolf stone is a gravestone that, in, that is, in the most literal sense, a slab of rock that is placed over the gravesite to prevent wild animals or wandering livestock from disinterring the corpse. Over time, the threat posed by animals in cemeteries was no longer a concern, so the use of wolf stones diminished. And in the modern day, they're a very rare sight. Those that were present in the colonial era cemeteries gradually became buried in the earth under a built-up of overgrown grass and decomposing vegetation, or they were removed and used as capstones 
for the stone walls that surrounded the cemetery. To the modern visitor, a large granite slab covering Mary Nason's grave had no practical purpose, so many assumed it was placed there for an otherworldly reason, and that it was exactly why so much of the lore surrounding her gravesite exists. The lore about Mary's grave differs depending on where you hear it. In all versions, she was a witch, and the wallstone is said to generate heat from her restless spirit. As the widespread versions tell, Mary was a witch who uh, executed the, was executed for the evils of witchcraft. The stone slab is placed on her grave to prevent her from rising as a revenant. The crows that are seen in the cemetery are said to be her familiars. On the other hand, the lore told by the locals presents a different character of Mary. The lore insists Mary was a practitioner of white witchcraft, and her benign spirit haunts the cemetery. Teachers at a nearby school say that she sometimes haunts the playground. Her spirit likes to push the swings and leave cut flowers around for the children. The epitaph on her headstone does not suggest she was evil in any way. It was carved in 18th century English script, so it reads, Here lies quite free from life's distressing care, a loving wife, a tender parent dear, set down in midst of days, as you may see, but stop my grief. I soon shall equal be when death shall stop my breath and end my time. God grant my dust and may mingle then with thine, sacred to the memory of Mrs. Ware, Mary Nason, wife of Samuel Nason, who departed this life in August 18, 1774, at age 29. Certainly, if she was an evil witch, she would not have God mentioned in her epitaph. And she wouldn't have been buried in the cemetery, as the rumors from the lore continue and persist. After all, People can't resist some scandalous gossip. No, no, they cannot. If Patrick wins the lottery, he's hoping Patrick the way he wants two wolf statues on either side of his grave with ravens on the headstone. No, I'm I'm in. I want a QR code on my headstone. It's QR code. Yeah, I, there's actually people that are doing that, I've heard. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. I just want a dragon and a horse that I'm going to be a fairy again. That's all I ask for. <laughs> Not much. again? If you can find me one, yes. Cool. It doesn't have to fly. Would that be a plus? Yeah, I mean, flying one does not bird. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll get right to work on that. Anyway, so next we are going to go to Aurora, Nebraska, where we have, well, the appropriately named Aurora Witch. Now, if you caught our first show about witches, which was actually almost two years ago, it's been a while. April 12, 2021, you might remember us chatting about the Witch of Yazoo and her grave. Now, the Witch of Yazoo and the Aurora Witch have a very distinct feature in, um, in my, um, both of their graves, as they are both surrounded by chains. And both legends claim that chains surround the graves to keep the witch's evil spirits from returning and carrying out their curse on the community. However, unlike the Witch of Yazoo, the Aurora Witch's headstone bears an epitaph that offers the name, birthday, and date of death. Unfortunately, what was once intended as a respectable uh, memorial for the dead woman has only made her name infamous. The Aurora Witch was a woman named Susan McKinney Gavin. Susan was born in April 1842 and died at the age of 40 on November 11, 1882. In every version of the tale, Susan Gavin was a woman whose public behavior was described as unconventional and strange by 19th century standards, though details on this behavior are scarce and unreliable at best. She may have been regarded as strange simply for being a woman who was ahead of her time. The 19th century saw some major changes in the way American women were managing their families and homes. In colonial times, men were regarded as morally superior to women. Mm, uh, yep, um, nope, no. But, but the Victorian era saw a shift in this view. I should have let you read this one. <laughs> <laughs> so, women, were, uh, women were the great moral managers of the family, and their duty was to ensure a good moral upbringing for children whilst creating a peaceful home life for their husbands. <laughs> Thus, any behavior or lifestyle that contrasted to the norm was considered unconventional. 
From the variations in the lore surrounding her, it's likely that Susan was too outspoken for certain members of the Victorian era community. Now, Susan's lone grave site is in the northwest corner of Aurora Cemetery, and by most standards, would be considered beautiful. It features a white marble obelisk, the rooftop style that was common in the Victorian era. It's a style that suggests home and family. However, Nebraskan lore always describes Susan's monument as odd and protruding. The heavy growth of yellow-green moss covering the north side of the monument has also been deemed bizarre and supernatural when described in the lore, but there is truly nothing supernatural about moss growing on the north side of anything. As the tale goes, the 19th century farming community of Aurora faced a terrible growing season one year. Livestock was struck down by mysterious ailments and several people became ill. The townsfolk believed that their misfortune was the result of a spell cast by the eccentric Susan McKinney. When she refused to rectify her curse, a group of angry community members hunted her down and hung her for practicing witchcraft. Others claim that she was condemned to burn to death for dabbling in witchcraft, but all variations of the tale claim her dying words were a promise to return from the dead and take revenge on the town. The white, uh, the, the, mar the marble monument was erected to warn people of the fate that they would suffer for practicing witchcraft. The grave was enclosed with an iron chain to ensure that her evil spirit would be contained at the burial site if she ever returned from the dead. It is believed by many young people who live in the area today that stepping on Susan's grave will cause them to die in nine years or by the time that they turn 21. Leaving an offering such as coins or flowers at her grave apparently counters the threat of a premature demise. The chains to Susan's grave were broken and repaired so many times that any future restoration efforts were decided to be futile. Visitors to the cemetery describe overwhelming feelings of sadness and foreboding when they approach her grave. The epitaph on this grave simply states, Susan A., wife of Frank P. Gavin, died November 26, 1882, aged 40 years, 7 months, and 15 days. The monument also marks the grave of an infant daughter named May, who died at 7 months old in 1882. <clears throat> an excerpt from Susan's obituary describes Susan as an esteemable lady, beloved hosts, uh, uh, beloved hosts of acquaintances, mother of several children, and married to Frank P. Gavin. The obituary explains that she had taken ill, and despite seeming to improve over the weekend, her condition worsened to the point of death. Susan and Gavin were married on Halloween, according to several sources, a month traditionally associated with witches and spirits. The date of their marriage obviously has a lot to do with the idea that she was actually a witch, no matter how unjustified it might be. The biographical information that is available about Susan's life suggests that she was actually a well-liked and respected member of the community. The lore surrounding her demise is completely false, but the feelings of sadness and foreboding that emanate from her gravesite are true. Many people who were completely unaware of the lore surrounding her grave describe extreme feelings of despair when approaching the place where she is buried. Which, considering the lore that surrounds her today, I would there you go. Be a little pissed. Yeah, justifiably so. So, sorry, Susan. We we hope that um, you do find the peace that you so uh, reasonably deserve and desire. Excuse me. Okay. Next, we're going to go to the Chesterville Witch. Uh, this is Amish country and a little hamlet at Chesterville, Illinois. Here we find the grave of the Chesterfield Witch in a cemetery that is located along the banks of a river and poses a treacherous exploration to those who are not wary of the boundaries. The legend. Approximately 100 years ago, a 15-year-old Amish girl dared to challenge the religious views of her church. She was then accused of being a witch and her whereabouts became unknown for several days. Shortly after she went missing, she was found dead in a field, apparently of natural causes. She was buried in the town cemetery and an oak tree was planted over her grave to keep her condemned spirit from wandering. A wrought iron fence was constructed and placed around the perimeters of her grave for added precaution. The people believed that as long as the tree continued to grow and thrive, her spirit would not escape and seek revenge. The exact identity of the Chesterfield witch is unknown. The tree consumed a portion of the wrought iron fence over the years 
and a part of the headstone bearing the name is missing. The tree may fail to serve its protective purpose over time, as at some point a few years ago, someone girdled the tree around its base and attempt to slowly kill it. Whoever committed the act may have unknowingly unleashed something more dangerous than a dead girl's spirit in accordance with the oak tree lore of England. Traveling through the area where an oak tree has been cut can be deadly because you can attract the attention of the tree's vengeful spirit. This belief stems from the religion of the pagan Celts who believe that the trees possess a deity and any damage inflicted on the tree would be enough to enrage the spirit to take vengeance on those who harmed it. The floor is not unique to England. Trees are sacred and consider the host spirits in a number of cultures. The ancient Druids worshipped oaks, and they believed that the tree could possess either good or evil spirits. They believed the oak tree's deity acted as a guide between the plane of the spirit world and the living. Certainly not the sort of beliefs followed by an Amish religion. But the belief that a tree would keep the Chesterfield witch in place is more of a pagan belief than an Amish one. In a funeral art, an oak tree is a symbol of endurance, faith, honor, and virtue. In colonial America and throughout the Victorian era, the planting of an oak tree at a gravesite had nothing to do with the fear of witches. An oak tree was planted at a gravesite to signify respect for the deceased person's conduct in life. Although Amish village uh, an Amish village exists in the area, the Chesterfield Cemetery is not an Amish cemetery. The Amish established their burial grounds alongside their churches, and the male members of the community maintain them well. Amish cemeteries are relatively unremarkable in comparison to the American norm. The grounds are devoid of trees, ornamentation, the plots are bare. The very presence of a tree growing at the Chesterfield Witch's gravesite completely rules out the idea that it was planted by the Amish. In addition, the grounds do not look like they were maintained as Amish cemeteries typically are. In fact, some of the gravestones have been consumed by a nearby river. While a lawn to the cemetery may be well maintained, the headstones clearly are not. While some parts of the Chesterfield Witch grave a story add up, its connection to Amish history doesn't quite fit. But it still stands as yet another piece of witchcraft legend in the Americas. What did you do? I twisted the wrong way while I was trying to mess with the fire without standing up. Uh, Getting older is great. So um, we did um, wind up trimming a story. Well, the facts didn't line up. The facts were blatantly out of line. Just very briefly, an editorial review, we found uh, that the story about a couple that was persecuted and considered um, you know, for witchcraft, for actually they were uh, um, they were said to be of the Mormon, Mormon religion, which it, it, it is, you know, it, it is around historically, but at the time period, it was not. Yeah, because these folks were said to have been persecuted for being Mormons in the 18 teens, whereas the Church of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints or the Mormon Church, as it's more commonly known, is uh, was not founded until 1830. As a matter of fact, these folks were persecuted when um, oh, the uh, gentleman that founded the church. Uh, Joseph Smith? Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These, these folks were accused of... Uh, of um, being Mormons and being witches for being Mormons when um, Joseph Smith was only about 10 years old. He hadn't found the golden place yet. No, and he had not wrote the Book of Mormon uh, for about another, uh, I think it came out about five years after the uh, second of the two individuals, the couple, were dead. So, yeah. Yeah, fact check. Fact check. Fact check completely, yeah. Not sure what they were, but they weren't Mormon. Yeah, no, definitely not. So, anyway, but yeah, it's uh, it's fun seeing uh, catching some of that stuff out there. So, anyway, we are going on to Texas now. Not exactly what you might consider to be witchcraft country, but there's always an exception to the rule. Here we find the ominous grave of Elizabeth Simpson in the Bittick family cemetery, bearing a damning epitaph. And remember, as you are passing by, you must die as well as I. It should be noted 
that they dark. Yeah. He just got left. Yeah. <laughs> the, the epitaph I just read to you is actually rife with horrifying grammar. Um, so what I just read you was translated. Well, let's, let's just say. Uh, you get an example. And re remember as yo ah passing by yo. Oh, so it's done in dialect. Die as well as that. Yeah, yeah. It was. Um, oh, that, that's cool. I had to read it several times through to actually understand what it was trying to say. So. <clears throat> like back then, you had to pay for the letters. Yeah, true. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Um, the point is, is that it was um, it was a uh, indisputably grim epitaph. <clears throat> now, as any historian or cemetery researcher can confirm, prior to the 20th century. The spelling, grammar, and quality of memorial art on a headstone depended greatly on the artistic skill, skill and literacy of whoever carved it. The lore about Elizabeth Simpson and her involvement in witchcraft attracts a steady stream of legend seekers and, unfortunately, a steady stream of vandals. Well, it is widely told that she was a slave accused of practicing voodoo and was consequently hung for her commitment to such practices, the tree that she was hung from is said to be located down the road from the cemetery. I know you're talking about. Yeah. Sometimes the tale takes on an added sense of drama. In one instance, after being caught performing witchcraft, she stole a horse and tried to escape. She was caught and hung for the theft. Even after the Liberty Hill Independent newspaper published a story and debunked the lore, her grave still attracts a lot of unwanted attention, and the legend continues to grow. In fact, the Independent noted that Elizabeth's surviving descendants found nothing in their ancestral research to indicate that she was a slave. Uh, as a matter of fact, she may have actually been a, a white woman. So, I do love that they were more concerned about the horse theft than the witchcraft. Yeah, it's kind of, <laughs> but, well, that's how. Progress, guys. Legend is like, there's something to that, actually. So, <clears throat> many take the epitaph on Elizabeth's grave to be a literal warning and visit the cemetery to show off the fact that they tempted death and survived. Pieces of her headstone are chipped off for keepsakes and proof that they cheated death. The damage broke her headstone in half eventually, and prior to this, her headstone had actually been stolen on one occasion. Once it was recovered by police, Elizabeth's descendants eventually elected to have it moved to the front of the cemetery with the idea that it would uh, be more visible and try to deter further theft and vandalism, but moving the marker to a different section did little to help. Uh, recently, a gate and fence were erected to keep trespassers away at night. Elizabeth Simpson died in 1864 at the age of only 30 years old. If you should go to visit her grave someday, be sure to give it the respect that it deserves. We've done an episode on grave markers. We have not, but not I really should. Especially there's certainly there's really really material. We live in America, the place is actually grave markers. We need some good ones. We do. All right, we're going to uh, pop back over to Illinois to St. Omar Cemetery's Witch Grave in Ashmore. Uh, this is a very different kind of epitaph for you. Marcus A. Barnes, born January 14, 1837, died December 6, 1881. Caroline, his wife, born January 23, 1858, died February 31, 1882. Did you catch that last part? Caroline Barnes died on a day that never existed. February never had 31 days, nor even an even eh, not even in a leap year. But the date on the monument isn't the only thing peculiar about Caroline's grave. The appearance of her marker is not a traditional obelisk or headstone. The marker bears a non-existent date is a large sphere topping off a pile of wood with acorns, oak leaves carved into it. Many people say the sphere is supposed to be a crystal ball sitting atop of a pyre. Well, the other headstones in the cemetery face the east to west direction of Christian burials. Barnes's marker faces north to south. In addition, Caroline's gravesite rests in a cemetery that is now located in a ghost town. Add it all up and you can see why so much lore has surfaced about this grave. The story
story is that Caroline was accused of witchcraft, tried, and hung for her dealings with the devil. Following the hanging, her body was to be burned to ashes. However, when the time came for her to be hung, she didn't die and was buried alive. Yeah, whatever works. (laughs) As she was put in the grave, she vowed to return on the anniversary of her death. The fictional date of the death was put on the stone as a precaution to prevent her from returning from the dead. Kind of hard to come back on the anniversary of your death if it doesn't exist. That said, in some versions of the tale, Caroline was able to dig her way to the surface of the grave and escape, never to be heard from again. Sounds like some Kill Bill stuff there. The stone surface of the crystal ball on her grave is said to glow on a moonless night. Many who visit the grave site say it's impossible to photograph the memorial. Cameras will only pick up distortions or blank photos. It appears that some have taken to practicing witchcraft rituals on Caroline's grave as evidenced by wax candle drippings on the top of the ball. Aside from rumors and conjecture, little is known about Caroline, let alone her legacy as a witch. But what is known is that Caroline was one of the last remaining citizens to die in St. Omar. Most of Caroline's neighbors had already departed to other towns in hopes of finding greater prosperity. It's also known that Caroline's actual date of death was February 28th, as it is recorded in the Cole County death record. It could be that the incorrect date on her marker was a mistake that would have been too costly to correct. But what about the north-south direction of the monument? While different from other graves in the cemetery, the burial direction is not something that is generally associated with witchcraft. The unfortunate truth is that Marcus's cemetery monument has been victimized by vandals many times. And at least on one occasion, it was found completely knocked over. It's most likely that it was placed in the wrong direction when it was resurrected into an upright position. Today, the Omar Cemetery is the only remaining evidence of the town by the same name. If you stop by Ashmore, Illinois for a modern-day visit, keep an eye out for the grave with a date that doesn't exist, but treat it with the respect that the burial deserves. Patrick says, why not instead of returning on the anniversary of my death, say, I will return on a random date when you least expect it. Good luck. On birthday, she's got a lot of them to choose. Reason enough to haunt your dreams every night. 
people leave offerings of coins and seashells in the large granite vase that sits in the center of Betsy's burial plot. Seashells are left at Betsy's grave by visitors both as a symbol of their pilgrimage and as an offering to ensure good luck and prosperity. Others say that if you look in the vase, you will see the reflection of a dark soul gazing back at you. The poem quoted in Betsy's epitaph is the main reason so much negative lore is in circulation. People tend to notice the poetic verses first before even reading the first half of the epitaph, which gives Betsy's bio, uh, biographical information. The poetic verses are from our beloved Edgar Allan Poe, and from specifically, that guy. Yeah, specifically from his poem, Lenore. Ah, broken is the golden bowl, the spirit flown forever. Let the bell toll. A saintly soul floats on the singing river. Come, let the burial rite be read. The funeral song be sung, an anthem for the queenliest dead. That died young, a dinge for her, the doubly dead, in that she died young. Undoubtedly intended as an expression of love and grief over the loss of his young wife, John had no idea how his choice of poetry would corrupt Bessie's Christian reputation. Bessie did indeed die young at only 23 years old. She was actually roughly the same age as Poe's wife, Virginia, when she passed, uh, who passed away at the age of 24. Now, many believe that the queenliest dead means that Bessie was queen of the dead. <clears throat> Others say that the broken golden bowl refers to driving a stake through a vampire's heart. Broken golden bowl. I don't know. I don't make the connection, but maybe it's just me. But not all that is said about Bessie is negative. Some of the lore claims that she was a good witch who practiced spells for love and protection. The first lines of her epitaph do better in upholding her virtue. Elizabeth Bud Graham, wife of John Alexander Graham and daughter of David C. and Florence J. Wilson, born October 19, 1866, died November 18, 1889, a dutiful daughter, a devoted mother, and a loving and faithful wife. As for the non-traditional north and south direction that, gave the, that the grave supposedly faces, chances are that it doesn't denote the exact location of her grave within the plot. Large obelisks such as Bessie's were erected as the central monument of several grave sites within a family burial plot. The central monument does not designate the direction that the corpse faces. Each name of the family member would be inscribed on a different side of the obelisk, while the actual grave sites will be located within the perimeters of the plot, and sometimes accompanied by individual headstones. Most likely, John Alexander Graham had every intention of spending his eternal rest next to Bessie in the family burial plot, but eventually he remarried and was buried in another state with his second wife. Goes on that the uh, letters IHS adorn an area near the crest of the monument above a crown and cross. The symbols all denote Christian faith in a heavenly afterlife and would not appear on the grave of anyone practicing the evils of witchcraft. The letters IHS denote the first three letters of Jesus' name using the Greek alphabet. They stand for Iota, Eta, and Sigma. This uh, crown and cross denote the deceased's faith in Christ and the kingdom of heaven. According to Find a Grave, which is a fantastic resource, I must say, Elizabeth Bessie Bud Graham died of heart failure, not poisoning, and the info in her obituary further backs up her virtuous life as a devoted wife and good mother. The top of the obelisk has huge plumes of feathers like those that were used to adorn horse-drawn funeral carriages. Cemetery symbolism states that because of their lightness and their association with wings, feathers can be a symbol of the ascent into the heaven. Heaven is not a destination that a witch was expected to reach in the afterlife back in the, uh, you know, back in the day. Bessie's husband truly saw an angelic quality in his young wife and not anything diabolical. Many people believe that the lavish decor of the obelisk was meant to signify how vain Bessie was in life. Oh, my God. People are... They read too much in the thing. <clears throat> well, the elaborate ornamentation might appear gaudy to us. During the era that she was died, that she died, it most definitely was not so. 
The artwork on monuments often went over the top in Victorian times and was regarded as a respectable way of showing the depth of love felt for the deceased. Even in modern funeral art, each symbol and letter put on a monument costs money and more decoration equals higher costs. While the modern trend is towards practicality, during the Victorian times, people were expected to spend a sizable amount on their loved one's funeral expense and graveside memorial. Horse-drawn horses. Yep. As for Bessie not being at rest, well, she may not have been poisoned. She might be distraught if some of the modern-day rumors that surround her, though. As we noted before, respect, respect, respect. Always respect. All right, so we're going to go way back in time to Margaret Jones, which is a witch execution that took place in 1648. Uh, of course, Bridget Bishop was the first to be executed in the hysteria of the Salem Witch Trial. She was not the first to ever be ex executed for witchcraft in Massachusetts Colony. That person was actually sent to the gallows tree in Boston, and her name was Margaret Jones the wife of Thomas Jones of Charleston. Witchcraft was recognized by the very early laws of Massachusetts If any man or woman be witch that hath consulted with or has a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. Such was the law and such was the teaching of the minister of the colony, Bay Colony. However, uh, Maine was not alone in this belief system. Belief in witchcraft was common in Europe, and there were three years immediately preceding the persecution of Margaret Jones that scores of people had been convicted and put to death in England. Stories of the grave situation overseas led the people of Boston to fear for their safety. Perhaps there may be witches among us, they thought. Perhaps our neighbors are possessed of evil spirits, and they began to look around them, to watch each move, to wonder at its significance, until in their own disordered minds was born the bloody delusion of witchcraft. In the town of Charleston, the good woman gave her time and her skill to bring health and cheer into the homes of the sick. Like many other housewives of her day, Margaret Jones was skilled in making cooling drinks, soothing remedies from herbs and berries, and she visited her neighbors prescribing their ailments. But soon there were whisperings. Whence came her skill? How could she brew these simple drinks yet effective? Such wonderful cures. Something wrong. Something mysterious. Something that we must watch out for. The whispering grew until they reached the ears of the magistrates. And in the early spring of 1648, a good woman and her husband were arrested and thrown into the Boston jail. The jailer seized her, examined certain marks on her body, and insisted that they are the marks of a witch. And then, when the courts come in, we find the following order set down upon the books. This court binges this arose the same course that which hath been taken in England for the discovery of witches by watching, may also be taken here with the witch now in question. And therefore, you order with that a strict watch be set about her every night, and that her husband be confined in a private room and watched also. Here is the evidence that the magistrates were guided by the bloody news coming from the other side of the Atlantic, for Matthew Hopkins, witch hunter, was sending dozens of innocent men and women to the gallows. And here so in Boston, the witch watcher is appointed, and in the night of April 18th, he begins his work. What does he see? In his eye, more than enough, he peers into the dirty room where Mrs. Jones is combined, Perhaps he was crazy, perhaps he had too much to drink, or perhaps he's just a liar. But he says he saw a child in Margaret Jones' arms, that when he started in, the child ran into another room and then vanished into thin air. Then there is the other evidence. She was found to have such a malignant touch that many persons upon whom she laid her hands were taken with deafness or vomiting or other violent pains or sicknesses that the extraordinary violent effects of her medicines were brought up against her. In vain, she protests that there's any seed in one of them. The magistrates, even the level-headed John Withrop, seized upon it. If it is just any seed, how can she explain the marvelous potency of the brew? Others come forward and assert that she told those who did not take her medicines that they would never be healed. John Withrop recorded that 
Their diseases and hurts continued with relapses against the ordinary course and beyond the apprehension of all physicians and surgeons. Frantically, Margaret denies this, but it's too late. Her anger, fear, and frustration are also in turn used to get her at her trial. After all, an innocent woman would have no reason to be upset. And so she's found guilty and sentenced and led over to the hanging place on June 25, 1648. When the terrible thing is ended, there comes the final evidence against her. Evidence so overwhelming, so incontrovertible, that the Winthrop's sits down and records. The same day and hour she's executed, there's a very great tempest at Connecticut, which blew down many of the trees, etc. Meanwhile, her husband has been released, and he now begs the captain of the ship, welcome, at anchor off Charlestown for passage to Barbados, so that he can get away from the hated place. But the captain refuses. And some hours later, the vessel begins to roll strangely. There are 80 horses aboard her, and their constant shifting probably caused the ship to move. But the captain of the crew um, said the trouble was due to witchcraft. Jones has bewitched the ship, they say, and so the unfortunate man is dragged forth and hurried to the prison again. The ship says Winthrop moved no more, and Jones was afterward released. That's a little bit for tonight. And we do have a Lulu. I think you can see her just down here at the bottom of the screen, barely. A little shocky? Or you just surprised her? I surprised her. Lulu's not one to like having things coming down from above. So we have a kitty appearance tonight. Thank you, Lulu. I haven't seen her in. Yeah. She's been cold. She's finally forgiven us for uh, puffing her earlier. She gets a daily puff for her asthma. Yes. So Lulu does have some, some asthma, but we take care of that, don't we? Much to your dismay. <laughs> and occasionally mommy and daddy need forgiveness. Yeah. So, But anyway, so yeah, that was it for tonight. And uh, we do, uh, again, we got all the stuff going on next weekend. Um, quite literally all the stuff. Quite literally all the stuff between all the stuff with the Poe Museum and the, his birthday and the centennial celebration yeah. and everything that we are doing also up at Hanover Tavern. It is going to be an awesome weekend all around. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we will be back at the end of the month on the 30th with Haunted Colorado. Yes, that will be two weeks from today. Yes. So, yep, between now and then, we got everything next weekend, and then we're doing that convention in Orlando. Yes. And, uh, and then after that, we're going to have two haunted executive mansions because, well, I went down a rabbit hole. So, yes, executive mansions as in, like, the where, Governor. governors, or where governors live, where presidents live, that type of thing. Yes. And uh, there is uh, plenty to talk about on that topic. So I think we've actually we've touched on a couple of them over the years. Um, of course, you know, we talk about our own executive mansion here in Richmond all the time. Um, but, yeah, so we're going to do part one and part two in February because, well, it's President's Month. Yeah, so we're going to go with that. But uh, let's see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cats hate medical treatment. Granted, most people hate medical treatment, too. Cats just also have the disadvantage of not really being able to communicate when, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so yeah, on Colorado, that's going to be a, a, a cool episode. And uh, yeah, we've got all kinds of stuff coming up. And uh, don't forget, yeah, we've got the tours as well. Um, we're, again, every Friday, Saturday. Um, of note, in the next month, I think uh, we are actually, this is tentative, have to get it posted, but we are planning on doing a haunted dinner. It's back. Haunted Yay. dinner is back on Saturday, February 18th. If you go to look for it on our website, you will not find it because it is not posted yet, but I am working on that, and I hope to have it posted sometime this week. Yeah, as if I don't already have a full enough week of it. So we'll see if that happens. But it will be posted sooner than later, and uh, it's usually a hot ticket, and I expect that it will particularly be a hot ticket since our last haunted dinner. It'll be 
almost three almost three years. Almost three years before since we had our last public concert dinner. We've yes. done a few. Oh yeah, we have private. Done, we've done a few private ones, but um, yeah.